0: I can't tell you how many arguments I've got in with people it's like Storm Wolverine versus Storm Black Panther. Like, do you want me to bring out my syllabus? <laughs> so to be in a space where people are open to those conversations isn't a really fun way to connect with people who might be very, very different from you. That is the voice
1: of Philadelphia comic shop owner Ariel Johnson
0: on the beauty
1: of talking superheroes with other fans who are just as obsessed as you are.
2: Luckily for all of us, we happen to be living in the golden age of comic fandom. It's right now, today.
1: Yep. We can find comic books from essentially any period of time with ease. We can discover whole comic book communities at conventions or comic shops like Ariel's.
2: We can even debate anonymous strangers on Twitter about how Dazzler is actually super awesome but never gets a fair shake. Evan,
1: Evan, Evan, is this the only one you want to die on today?
2: Maybe. Evan. Who doesn't love disco rock star mutant superheroes? Okay, okay.
1: breathe, breathe. (sighs) Better.
2: Anyway, the whole point of this is the beauty of fandom today is that you can connect and express your affinity for superheroes or really anything with millions of people across the world. So yeah. Golden Age.
1: But it hasn't always been that way. The evolution of fandom has been a surprisingly rocky road, and it's taken decades to find a place where fans can connect the way we do now.
2: So today, we're devoting our entire episode to you the fans
1: to close out our first season with a bang we are taking you through fandom's century long evolution we'll cover all the twists and turns of collectors super fans diehard snobs cosplayers shop dwellers and panel loving nerds who have taken marvel from a tiny comic mag to a global phenomenon
2: it me lorraine or it us i should say
1: yes it us (laughs)
2: So hang with it, us, while we trace <laughs> the evolution of Marvel fandom from its humble beginnings to the wild world it is today through the stories of fans who were there along the way.
1: And see how they changed fandom themselves. This is Marvel's Declassified. I'm Lorraine Sink.
2: And I'm Evan Narciss. And as they say, this one goes out to all the fans.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: Okay,
2: here we are. The year is 1941. Decades from now, it'll be called the Golden Age of Comics. But when it comes to the fans at this point of history, golden is not the way to describe it. Comic fans love their comics as much as they do today, but there isn't an established fan community to speak of.
1: And what is an amazing comic without someone to geek out about it with?
2: Comic conventions won't come along for another two decades.
1: And worst of all... Comic shops haven't been invented yet. If you wanted to buy a comic, you did the same thing if you wanted a magazine. You'd go to the newsstand or the drugstore where they would have a tiny spinner rack full of comics over in the back.
2: There was no such thing as back issues or reissues. If you missed an issue, you missed it. It's gone.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. No comic shops. No internet. Man, Oh man, 1941. That's a rough time to be a comic fan.
2: Totally. But the reason we came back to 1941 in the first place is because it's the year that something happens that will be a complete game changer. The birth of something huge for comic book fans everywhere.
1: Right a small New York City publisher called Novelty Press releases their April issue, number 14, of a new adventure series called Target Comics. And on the first page, they've printed five letters from their fans. And this is widely considered the birth of the comic book letter column.
2: For the uninitiated, The letters pages, sometimes called letter calls, have become a long-standing tradition in the mainstream comic book industry. They're the small section in the back of every issue where readers' letters to the publisher get printed. A small but crucial step for fans everywhere.
1: That's so right on, Evan. Though it seems small now, it is a huge deal.
2: Fans never had an outlet like that before. Finally, they could connect with the creators they loved and even communicate with other fans just like them. Usually, letters to magazine editors were carefully selected. Only certain people and ideas made the cut.
1: But Novelty Press chucked all the rules. They decided to print letters written by anybody of any age group about literally anything they wanted to write them about, even critiques of the comics. This paved the way for a whole generation of letter writers, including a bunch of young fans who went on to become famous creators in their own right.
2: And all these letter writers had something in common. They shared a particular nickname for what they did, a letter hack. Now, if you've never heard that term before, don't worry, I've got you. Because we've got a bona fide letter hack who's going to define it for you.
3: You know, I don't know why hack got attached to it. Looking back, gee, that was kind of mean. But the letter hack was somebody who wrote a lot of letters intended to get them published. Somebody who was going to reliably And with some degree of passion and intelligence, analyze your work. That is the voice of
1: Joe Duffy, an old school Marvel letter hack who went on to write and edit a ton of incredible Marvel titles in the 70s and 80s.
3: I did Fallen Angels, I did Chris Star the Crystal Warrior, Star Wars, I did the English language adaptation of Akira, and I probably did at least one issue fill in of every book than the Marvel roster at some time or another. Okay, so
2: what made you decide to start writing these letters?
3: Okay, here is what I think happened. I gravitated toward Peter Parker and Johnny Storm because they were kids. I could see going to school with them in a few years. And I liked a couple of the comics so well, I wrote fan letters, which I'd never done before. And surprise, surprise, The first two fan letters I ever wrote were published. And you want to talk about feeding an addiction? (laughs) I'm not only a fan, but I've gotten in at the companies. They're reacting to my feedback.
2: That's amazing.
3: And by then I was realizing that you were probably right. It will be people who do the actual work. By then I'd put that much together.
2: Right. You didn't think that Jack Kirby was friends with (laughs) Richards. (laughs) But I'll
3: bet he was.
2: Yes, in his head.
3: No, what? you go to the Baxter Building right now. You ask Reed; he's going to tell you he and Jack were peeps from day one.
2: Oh my God, you're killing me! What about your immediate cohort in high school? Did you ever have friends who were fans as well?
3: Nope, not really, remotely. I was completely alone. I know there were other comics fans because once, when I was on stage for some bizarre reason during an assembly somebody stole a bunch of comics out of the stack of books I left on my chair. So I'm like, okay, comic fans here, but not friends of mine, apparently.
2: Wow, that's so messed up. So how did you eventually wind up connecting with kids who were into the same stuff as you?
3: You know, there was no Facebook, no internet, no social media, but a lot of the letter columns printed your full return address. It, yeah. And by the way, hello, stalkers. Um, <laughs>
2: Yeah, I can't believe they used to print people's full addresses.
3: Exactly. Hey, I had stalkers show up at my house. Luckily, I still lived with my parents at the time, so no harm, no foul. But along with the occasional creepy stalker, I began to get letters from other people whose names I knew in the letter column, and we formed this little club. So suddenly we were all writing to each other.
2: Did you feel like the letters that got printed had an impact with publishers?
3: Uh, I now know they did because when I came knocking on the door saying hi um, to apply for a job, they're like, we know who you are. You're you're the one who told me my taste was all in my mouth and that I don't know how to write women. Eep! <laughs> well, sorry about that, but hi, here I
4: am.
2: That's great. Okay, so the artist feels something, puts it onto the world, and then the fan reads it and responds. Talk to me about that feedback loop. And, and what that felt like before you became a professional creator?
3: I never thought I was on an equal footing with them, but I felt heard. Even if they never changed a thing, the fact that somebody actually read what I wrote and gave it enough thought to reply to it, that was priceless. It's very funny. When I was the editor on She-Hull, we were getting letters from a kid named Barry and he had a fictitious organization called the Committee to Cancel the She-Hulk. It wasn't enough that he didn't like it. He didn't like it so much we had to cancel it. And I've known Barry, especially online, for years. And one day, he you know, he got a little snippy with me in a jocular way. And I was like, is now the time to tell you that I know who you are and I've never forgotten the Committee to Cancel the She-Hulk?
2: Oh, my God. You have receipts going back decades. That's amazing. Okay, Joe Duffy, I want to hit you with a big question. We found one of your old letters that Marvel published. Would you read it for us?
3: Okay. And by the way, I've got to admit, I remember writing this. I don't remember most of the letters I've written, but I clearly remember writing this one. And
2: now, ladies and gentlemen, from the letters page of Iron Fist number 12, an excerpt of 22 year old Joe Duffy's letter as performed by present day Joe Duffy.
3: Dear Chris and John, I don't have time to write this letter. I really don't. But I won't be able to concentrate on anything for the rest of the day unless I tell you immediately how great I think Iron Fist number 10 was. So that what used to be a book I bought because I happened to have the quarter now has become a book I'll kill to get the 30 cents for. Chris, no man has ever characterized women as clearly and realistically as you do. Colleen and Misty are both wonderful characters for their faults and weaknesses, as well as their strength and individuality. Iron Fist has grown from a foolish, vengeful child into an interestingly sensitive and whimsical man. With his strength, it would have been easy to turn him into a machismo, wisecracking superhero, and you avoided that neatly. John, what can I say except that I fell in love with your style when you were doing Raj 2000, and that carefully controlled undertone of cartooniness is one of the things that makes your work here brilliant and innovative. I wish there was time to go into detail. This is probably the most effusive quickie I'll ever write. Joe Duffy. (laughs) Two. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's a great letter. Thank you. <laughs> Good thing it was a nice letter because Chris and John became two of my dearest and most cherished friends in my early days of Marvel. And I have a feeling having sent them this before I was in the business did not hurt that a bit.
1: So Marvel's letter column began in the 1960s in Fantastic Four number three, And soon, fandom would expand beyond the letter pages. In 1964, Marvel and other publishers were looking for new, innovative ways to engage with their fans. Welcome now to the dawn of comic book fan clubs.
2: So publishers started these fan clubs, and they worked like this. You'd mail in an application and usually a small initiation fee, like a dollar or something. And then they'd mail you back an envelope with a bunch of dope comic swag.
1: And in addition to being an official card-carrying member of the club, you'd also be eligible for discounts, special events, and, you know, all that jazz.
2: So you got all that stuff in the mail, which is great, right? Stickers, drawings, whatever— But, you know, the main thing that you got was, like, a sense of belonging. You were connecting to other fans just like you.
1: Which is obviously priceless. And if you were a Marvel fan in 1964, there was this new fan club that you could join, which was the brainchild of Stan Lee himself. And we found some tape of him talking about it.
5: One thing I tried to do in order to make being a Marvelite fun was have a club. But again, I don't like to do things in an ordinary way. I didn't want to put a notice in the magazine and say, hey, we formed a club. Here's a coupon. Sign it and join. I wanted to make it a fun thing. So I had a contest in my soapbox. I announced that we were going to form a club. And I said I'd give a prize to anybody who could figure out what the name of the club was. And I gave them a hint. The initials were the MMMS. And we got a million letters. they mentioned a million things. Of course, none of them could guess the real name, which I finally announced was the Merry Marvel Marching Society.
2: Okay, so how, pray tell, did one join this exclusive club, Lorraine?
1: Well, you mailed one U.S. dollar and filled out an application to Marvel, and after a couple of weeks, you would get a welcome packet in the mail with all the stuff that you needed to become a member Easy. Yep. And Evan, I just happen to have one such welcome packet from the Mary Marvel Marching Society. So I think we should crack it open.
2: Oh my God. It's so great. It's got cards, buttons, sketch pads, catalogs, artwork. It's all just utterly amazing, like a little time capsule for Marvel in the 60s. Yeah,
1: I love that there is also an official letter that welcomes you into the club, and it is signed by the Bullpen Gang.
2: Arguably, the most valuable item is the membership card. It's signed by Benjamin J. Grimm, who, of course, is The Thing from the Fantastic Four. On the back, it's got this Merry Marvel Pledge, which is phenomenal. Lorraine, do you, do you want to recite the pledge with me? Can we do that together as co-hosts?
1: Do I? Um, But before we do, I think we need some, like, really spicy pledge-taking music. Do we have anything we can throw on? Good. That's good. All right. Here we go. The Merry Marvel Pledge. I I pledge allegiance to the mags
2: mags of of the Marvel Marvel group. group. And And to to the madmen who put put them on on stands, stands, one bullpen, bullpen, understaffed, indecipherable, indecipherable, with liberty and, liberty and boo-boos for, for all.
1: I I put my hand on my heart. <laughs> I didn't even think about Lorraine, it. Lorraine,
2: you, you have your hand that over your... That
1: was Pavlovian response at its finest.
2: Wow. Imagine getting this thing in the mail. It, it essentially means that you're less than one degree of separation away from the people making the comics that you love. That's uh, so awesome. Like, 1964 was a hell of a year to be a comics fan.
1: And it ain't over yet, my friend... 1964 was a watershed year, and the year's greatest gift was yet to come. That summer, New York City hosted what many consider the world's first comic book convention. Now, to be clear, sci-fi conventions had been going on for quite some time by this point, but what made this convention special was that it was exclusively devoted to comic books.
2: It all happened on July 27th, 1964. Around 50 or so comics fans gathered together in a union hall in downtown Manhattan. As it happens, we found a fan who not only attended the 1964 New York Comic Con, he was, in fact, the very first person to buy the very first ticket.
1: That's right, the conventions program includes a page with a list of names. It's a list of everyone who attended the convention in order of when the attendees bought their tickets. And this fan, the one that we're about to hear from, his name is right at the top of that list. Back then, he was just a 15-year-old kid growing up across the river in Bayonne, New Jersey. And that kid's name, well, it uh, it might ring a bell. <laughs>
5: Well, I'm George Martin, better known as George R.R. R. Martin, I guess, these days. I'm the uh, author of Game of Thrones, uh, Song of Ice and Fire, and a lot of other science fiction and fantasy. And once upon a time, I was a member of the Mighty Marvel Marching Society.
1: <laughs> we'll hear a firsthand account of the world's first comic book convention from a kid who grew up to be one of the greatest authors of his time after the break.
2: Marvel's The Classified is back, and as promised, we have a first-hand account of the very first comic convention from George R.R. R. Martin.
5: you got to remember that in these days, comic book fandom was mostly high school kids, you know, and some cases even junior high school kids. We were young, so things like throwing a convention, renting a hotel ballroom, or negotiating rates for people to stay at hotels, that was way beyond uh, the skill set of most 14-year-olds. So when they announced it, you know, I didn't know whether it would happen or not. But they were selling memberships; they were dollar fifty, I think. So I sent in my dollar fifty. Probably I had a, a dollar bill and a quarter taped inside of it because I didn't have a checking account or anything in those days. And they put me on the list. In fact, I was the first person. I was member number one. So.
1: Wow. Okay. So, uh, take us through it. What was it? What was it like to be there?
5: The convention was only one day long. I took the bus over from from Bayonne and got off in the middle of uh, Greenwich Village, 1964, which was, you know, we were starting at the whole hippie phrase. So that was a revelation too. Uh, and I found this, it was like in a union hall. It was called the Working Man's Palace or something. Uh,
2: so about that name, the union hall they rented was actually the Workman's Circle Building near Union Square. Okay, back to George. But th-
5: they just had a room. That's all it was. It was like one room. And in the corner, there were like three guys who had uh, folding tables on which they'd put cardboard boxes of old comics that you could buy. And the speakers came up in front and they talked. And there were periods where we could mingle and talk to each other. Um,
1: were there a lot of kids or young people like yourself? Did you did you make any new friends? Or
5: I did not, no. I, I knew a few of the names of the people there uh, from letter columns. I think I was one of the younger people there and there were other high school kids and there were some college kids. The the one person who was actually not at that convention but was a big part of that convention who later became a really, really close friend of mine for many decades was was Len Wein.
1: Len Wein would go on and later co-create characters like Wolverine, Nightcrawler, Storm, and Colossus.
2: Oh man, Len Wein, such an important part of so many comics.
5: Great X-Men comics.
1: Giant-sized X-Men
2: for
5: life. For life. Len Len Wein had been, and I didn't know Len at the time, but I knew his name from the fanzines, and he was in the letter columns too. And he was one of the people who helped organize this, along with uh, someone named Bernie Bubniss. And then when I actually got to the convention, Len and Bernie Bubniss had had some sort of falling out and len had been banned from the convention <laughs> some dispute about trading comic books I, I don't know some fanish high school dispute but in later years at other conventions i did meet len and we became good friends and were quite close for years to come
2: okay so you mentioned the guest speakers a moment
5: ago uh, what do you remember about who was there and what they said there there were a couple guests um that i really wasn't familiar with but uh, Fabulous Flo Steinberg was the guest, Stanley's uh, secretary. That was exciting. Yeah. And then Steve Ditko showed up.
1: Whoa, Steve Ditko. Wow.
5: And for me, that's the that's the highlight of it. I mean, I was like a 15-year-old kid, and I got to talk to Steve Ditko and shake his hand and tell him how much I loved his art. And, uh, you know, the only thing I really remember is saying, you know, Spider-Man is great. Uh, I love him but what I really love is and Dr. Strange. And Ditko said, yeah, he's my favorite too. I, I also, I love drawing those. <laughs> That's my biggest memory of that uh, convention. It was over after one day.
2: Uh, I, my jaw's on the ground that you got to meet and talk to uh, Ditko. I mean, w- what an experience. I got his autograph,
5: uh, too, if I could ever find it. <laughs> man, a <the> Steve Ditko <laughs> autograph. Oh, oh. That
1: is incredible. Did you snag any other autographs? I,
5: ha- I had, you know, they gave you your, your membership stuff in this brown manila envelope, 9 by 12 And I had a number of the artists, you know, Ditko and Flo Steinberg and some of the other people sign it. And I know I still have it because I'm a pack rat who never throws anything away, (laughs) but I don't know where it is anymore among all the things I've accumulated in the last half century.
2: God, I can't deal. You got to send somebody up to your attic to catalog all this stuff, please, for the good of all nerd kind.
1: (laughs) Okay, so you've got one convention under your belt. When did you go to your next one?
5: Well, my next one was just the following year, the 1965 convention. But that was very different because uh, it was not being run by a bunch of high school kids. It was not a single day in a single room. It was a, a, a big convention in a hotel with a big hotel ballroom. And, uh, you know, there was a costume party and uh, people actually stayed at the hotel, I think. I couldn't afford a hotel room. And so I took the bus in and went home and took the bus in the next day. And uh, the TV news crew showed up. to to do a picture of uh, these geeky comic book fans who were all excited over old dime comic books. (laughs) And I remember watching the news story after I got home. They had an auction there. They were auctioning off uh, a copy of Action Number One. Went for a hundred bucks. Made the TV news action <laughs> comics number one
2: for a hundred dollars? Are you kidding me? I'm sure that was a
1: lot of money at that time, but I read that that book went for I think like three million dollars recently.
5: That's <laughs> wild.
1: I would gladly take it for hundred.
5: Same. You know, it, it, as I recall, the news thing was pretty mocking. It was like, can you get these geeky people? They paid a hundred dollars for an old ragged ten cent comic book. <laughs> Who would do that? <laughs> I met Ditko at that first one. At the second one, there was an artist who had set up in the dealer's room with his own table. I guess it was his own artist alley. He was inventing artist alley. (laughs) And he was showing his art. Um, He was not a professional artist at the time, I guess, or he was, but not in comics. And um, you've got me on the edge of my seat here.
1: Same. Who who was it? It
2: was Jim Steranko. What? Wow. What? (laughs) for anybody out there listening who doesn't know jim steranko he revolutionized the look of marvel's comics just an absolute icon in this industry
1: he's well known for his work on nick fury and the agents of shield as well as his work on characters like scorpio and polaris plus you will probably recognize steranko as the comic creator most likely to be wearing a turtleneck
5: so, I remember looking at this art by Steranko and then even writing. You know, there was this guy at the convention, Jim Steranko. He's really good. <laughs> His art was terrific. And indeed, he was really good because I think there were representatives there from DC and Marvel and even some of the other companies. And I think they all tried to hire Steranko. But uh, Marvel got him, and Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. suddenly took on a whole new look.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, those covers are so incredible, especially. So, George, obviously, in just the last 20, 30 years, there's been a huge change in conventions and just the scope and scale of them. Is there anything that you miss about sort of the good old days of these early conventions?
5: Well, yes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Those early conventions were very much about comic books. You know, I I haven't been to the San Diego Comic-Con in in a, a few years, but it's all different world. It's, it's professional publicists and people promoting their movies and their television shows. And um, comics are now relegated to a little dusty corner in, in the back there. But it's certainly come a long cry from the three guys setting up folding tables and putting their cardboard boxes that we started with.
1: i really loved getting to talk to George because, you know, he grew up being a comic fan, just like you and me and so many other people. Clearly, that passion can carry you somewhere. But right now, a time machine is going to travel us to 1970. So hold on to your hat. The 70s. I can dig it. A decade where people wore polyester unironically, raised pet rocks, mood rings, told them how they felt. And of course, appliances came in every color, including avocado.
2: I personally am okay with avocado colored appliances. Uh, But more importantly, at least for the purposes of this episode, is the ever-growing population of comics fans. They're still struggling to find their place in an ever-changing world.
1: And something that is very exciting was on the horizon for fans. The time had come for a new kind of store. A store that sold one thing in particular, comic books.
2: So, Lorraine, I definitely remember in my lifetime the shift... From trying to find comics at random places, like the Delicatessen down the road from my house where I grew up, to actually knowing the shops that I went to would have the comics that I wanted. And it was a life changer.
1: Yeah. I remember when we got our first comic shop, because I used to go buy comics at the Payless, which doesn't even exist anymore, the Payless Drugs. They kept comics over by the ice cream scoop area, so a win-win for a kid. And I remember we got a comic book shop and it was such a big deal at the time. It only lasted for a couple of years in my small economically depressed town. But I remember it was such an overwhelming and exciting experience as a kid because for the first time you could walk through aisles of comic books.
2: When you look into the history, there are so many differing accounts of what the first comic book shop was. So to help sort through all of that, we enlisted the help of a guy by the name of... Dan
4: Gurino. And what's your trade, Dan? What do you do? Most of the time, to most people, I'm known as a business journalist and uh, an environmental journalist. But by night... I write about comics. And I've been reading comics since as long as I could read. And I I wrote a book published in 2017 called Comic Shop, which is about both kind of the history and then kind of the modern culture of comics and comic shops.
2: Talk to us a little bit about how comic shops came to be.
4: In the kind of the, the golden age, you bought comics at the grocery store, you bought it at candy stores, you bought it at pharmacies. I mean, you also can have kind of accidental exposure to comics. Um, You know, people who weren't even thinking about them, but would just see them um, at the newsstand or at the store. Individual issues of comics in the 40s were selling in the millions.
2: All right. Walk us through the evidence for whoever can claim being the first owner of a proper comic
4: book shop. So if you want to answer the question of what was the first comic shop, you first need to figure out how you define what a comic shop is. And there is no... Clear answer to that. But if your definition is a store that primarily sells comics and caters to a comic collector audience, some of the candidates are. There was a store in a small city in Kansas in the 1940s that primarily served a uh, military base. The owner was named Pop Hollinger. That's definitely in the discussion for first comic shop ever. Okay, fast forward. Um, You've got a bunch of used bookstores that had really great comic sections. Um, there was a store in the Buffalo area. There were a couple stores in the Los Angeles area, a couple stores in the New York area. If you're in the comic section of these places, you certainly feel like you're in a comic shop. But you don't get comic shops that you or I would recognize as familiar until the late 60s.
2: You're dancing around an answer, to Reno. Give me something
4: definitive, please. I would say, if I was asked what I think the first comic shop was, <laughs> the romantic choice would be Victory Thrift and Queens. I think it started selling comics and featuring comics circa 1960 and a little bit into the early 60s. But you don't really know. It, there's, there isn't like some clear demarcation where it went from being one thing to a different thing.
1: So the short answer is he doesn't know.
4: Yeah, right. I, you're basically right. I really couldn't get Dan to commit to an answer.
2: But it's a tough thing to try and pin down.
1: But that's sort of the point, right? it's kind of impossible to have a definitive answer because comic stores didn't just appear. They all started as used bookstores or corner newsstands, and then they slowly evolved into comic shops.
2: Exactly. No one person invented comic shops. They just slowly happened. I'm glad we cleared that up, Evan. So am I. And aside from brick-and-mortar shops being the best way to get comics, they served another, dare I say, more important purpose. They gave fans a chance to meet other fans where they lived so fans could be friends in real life, which is a big step up from making friends via letter column.
1: Oh, a huge step. And in addition to local comic shops beginning to connect fans, there was something else that had been evolving and gaining momentum over the past 15 years that would also help fans connect. Hoverboards? No, not... Not hoverboards. We are still in 1975, my friend. So, remember those tiny, grassroots comic conventions that began in the 1960s, like the one George R.R. R. Martin just described?
2: Of course. It was like literal minutes ago.
1: Fair. Well, after 15 years of throwing conventions, organizers had gotten a whole lot better at it. And as a result, Comic-Cons got way, way bigger.
2: And wouldn't you know it, this is exactly when the world was introduced to the Mighty Marvel Comic Conventions.
1: Yes, we found some old school footage from the second Mighty Marvel Comic Convention in 1976. The video is all black and white film stock showing a bunch of young comic fans packed inside New York City's Hotel Commodore. It's, It's mostly young kids with comic books in hand waiting to get them signed and... It honestly looks like a blast. Then it cuts to Stan Lee, who gives this little intro.
5: This is it, the second annual Mighty Marvel convention on April 23rd, 24th and 25th in New York City. This is Stan Lee talking and you are there. Now I'll shut up and give you a chance to see what was happening. Here we go.
1: And to no one's surprise, the fans were pumped.
6: Ah, this is the second annual Marvel Comic Con. This is the second year I've been here. Okay, you having a good time? I'm having a fantastic time. This is what I live for. (laughs) What's your favorite character? Ugh, Ben Grimm the Thing. Right. And why is that? I don't know. It's just his personality and, like, you know, what happened to him. He was turned into a monster, and it wasn't his fault. And I like him. What's your favorite character in Marvel Comics? The Hulk. The Hulk? Yeah. Why is that? Speak up. Well, I get a kick out of it. He's strange, he's different, you know, from other other heroes.
5: And speaking of the Hulk, there he is. Now, he may not be flesh and blood, this is the closest we were able to come to him in a short time. I would...
1: Now, what you can't see in this video is there is a truly phenomenal Hulk costume in the crowd.
2: So it's like a a wearable balloon, kind of like those T-Rex costumes you see all the time, but like in the shape of the Hulk.
1: But this is 1976, so obviously the technology that exists to make those T-Rex costumes isn't available. So this guy is really inside a plastic balloon and to that end has a little tiny sort of breathing hole in the middle of Hulk's chest, because it is about seven feet tall.
2: Yeah, again, it's such like a snapshot of time of what fan gatherings were like in this moment. And it's it's kind of goofy, kind of fun, totally unexpected.
1: And of course, Stan Lee loves it.
5: I want to tell you, he was one of the hits of the show. Whoever is inside of him sure did a great job. He didn't beat up more than a few kids.
1: <laughs> All right, Evan, you know what? We are going to hop ahead. Obviously, The 80s continued to boom, but I think you're going to find some of the biggest changes for fandom happened in the 90s. So let's go.
2: The 90s, otherwise known as me going to college.
1: Ah yes, the decade of our youth. What a time to be alive, Evan.
2: And the best part about getting to the 90s, from here on out, we can talk about fandom from personal experience. Because we were there.
1: We sure were. We were alive for this part. Go us.
2: I think I think it's more like go our parents, but sure. Okay. <laughs> there are several new developments in the 90s that we're going to touch on. Because they paved the way for what's to come. In such an eventful decade, where do we even begin?
1: Well, I guess let's start with a big chunk of 90s fandom, which was... Wizard Magazine. Oh, yeah. In 1991, comic fans could suddenly subscribe to a magazine purely about comics that arrived each month with polybag trading cards.
2: So I have to be upfront here. I wasn't a subscriber of Wizard Magazine, but I did pick it up pretty regularly whenever there was like a creator or a character spotlighted that I liked. And, you know, the thing about Wizard, as like hype-thirsty as it was is that I learned about the creators and the people making the comics that I loved in a way that I really hadn't before.
1: And a bunch of current Marvel folks cut their teeth at Wizard, like Ryan Pinagos, my co-host from This Week in Marvel, a.k.a. Agent M. And Ricky Purden, our director of talent relations, who scouts all of Marvel's comic book talent. So obviously, Wizard was the starting ground for many a comic book professional. But overall, the 90s were a roller coaster.
2: They totally were. Comic book creators in this era, they're becoming household names like Todd McFarlane or Rob Liefeld. The industry is getting really huge.
1: And then suddenly, the bubble bursts and the industry is almost destroyed and That is a really big story, which is why we made it into a whole episode. You can listen to it. It's episode six about Marvel Knights. Which
2: you've all listened to by now, right?
1: Right. So anyway, back in the 90s, computer technology begins to explode. And then comic book creators take a huge step out of the shadows and into the mainstream.
2: And Magneto rips out Wolverine's adamantium skeleton.
1: Uh, You're right, Evan. Also true. No big
2: deal. (laughs) But with all the changes going on, the biggest game changer was just on the horizon. It was the rise of the machine.
1: Or more commonly known as the Internet, Evan. <laughs> oh, that sound. I'm not sure if I miss it or not, or if I'm just vaguely traumatized by it. I can just hear my mom calling from me at the other room who's on the phone? <laughs>
2: Yeah, who's your mom even calling?
1: Uh, Probably my Aunt Debbie or, you know, Pam or or maybe some lovely charity, Evan.
2: Sure, she had a rich social (laughs) life, your mom did. Anyway, the point is, America was online in the 90s, right? So, we're comic book fans.
1: This was really a whole new way of creating communities around comics. You know, you could easily connect with other fans from anywhere in the world at any time of day. Definitely got me in trouble, you know, being on the internet when I was supposed to be asleep.
2: I mean, I was a grown man in my own apartment, but I definitely stayed up too late going (laughs) online. Something I still do today. Anyway, during that time, we started seeing stuff like comics publishers experimenting with AOL Messenger, which was an early chat app for all you youngins. And they would use these kind of connections to advertise their books and their creators.
1: And all of these fan-driven comic sites started sprouting up in the early days. Suddenly people could just, you know, toss up a website on a CompuServe and start talking about comics journalistically without having to go through a massive site and just using their passion and ingenuity.
2: Which meant fans could get their comics news immediately.
1: Yeah, and a lot of those early message boards evolved into full-blown, legit press sites over the years.
2: Press sites that would eventually cover the big new comic character-based movies that started coming out in the late 90s.
1: Yes, suddenly all of our favorite characters that we grew up watching on the X-Men animated series and reading about in comics were on the big screen. You know, I'm Jean Grey for life. Oh, and Evan, you know what? Since I'm talking about the first X-Men movie, of course, it came out in the year 2000, which means that we got to head on over to the next century. Oh yeah, you know what's coming, Evan.
2: Boom, the year 2000. Everyone has just finished freaking out about the Y2K bug machines have not yet risen up and crushed us it's the height of the dot-com bubble and backstreet is what they're back
1: all right all right okay fans are starting to see a handful of their favorite characters get their own movie or television franchises which means that fans beloved subculture pastime was suddenly being eked into the mainstream And with all of these changes, we're also seeing a shift in comic shops themselves. And we really wanted to know how comic shops had evolved over the years from the perspective of an actual comic shop owner.
0: So I sat down with Arielle Johnson, whose job is, well, she'll tell you. I'm the owner, operator, and head nerd in charge at Amalgam Comics and Coffeehouse, serving uh, the Kensington section of North Philadelphia and beyond since 2015. Today, Ariel is a badass comic shop-owning boss, but as I learned
1: when I sat down with her, the need to create an inclusive and welcoming space like Amalgam Comics came out of a childhood where she didn't necessarily have something like that available to her.
0: So my comic book journey is roundabout. It really started with the 90s Fox X-Men cartoon. Oh, yeah. Just seeing Storm, um, that was my first... Interaction with a, a Black female superhero. I feel like if I hadn't met Storm, I very easily could have grown out of it, uh, grown out of the love for those things. And she's, mm-hmm. she, I always call her like my anchor. Uh, Gambit and I have that in common. Storm is our anchor. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so it was my desire to learn more about her character, which brought me into comics. Mm-hmm.
1: What was it like the first time you stepped into a comic book shop as a kid?
0: It really took me a while to work up the nerve because I was really nervous to go into a comic book store, actually. So it's like, okay, I guess I have to, like, take the plunge. Yeah, I
1: mean, it can be nerve-wracking. I remember that when I was a girl. Yeah,
0: and— You're like, are these boys going to love me in this place? Yeah, and and, 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 so—and, like, for me, it's twofold. So I am the only person that looks like me on, you know, multiple levels, right? And so then feeling like, am I— are they judging me? Am I asking for the right thing? Are they like, oh, of course she's reading that because she's a woman or, you know what I mean, or whatever, whatever they're thinking. And So what finally happened when you mustered up the courage to go in? I will say, thankfully, my initial comic book experience, comic book store experience, was a positive one. Um, so, it, so you know, that, that fear that I felt didn't last very long, and then, you know, pretty much—then I then I was a regular, and if I missed a week, then it was like, hey, where have you been? And it's like, oh, yeah, I had a test. I couldn't make it in, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, you know, really becoming like, oh, that was my, my local community comic book story, which is a really cool feeling, too.
1: So, from where you sit today in the comic fandom ecosphere, what do you think is— important that comic shops offer customers nowadays, you know, as opposed to when you and I were kids?
0: I think there has to be more than, oh, you can buy your books here because there are honestly cheaper ways to buy books. There are easier ways to buy books. I I, like we're so in the future now. It's like, oh, I got to get out of the car. They can't just bring it to me. (laughs) So what are you offering that is going to bring people out make people want to be in your space? I think you know, people are understanding now that women read comics and women don't necessarily want to go into like a kind of sketchy looking building and the lights are half out and it's like, what, what is going on? You know what I mean? Because uh, I feel like there was a time where comic book stores were not actively catering to children. You can't ignore young readers or you won't have any readers 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 40 years from now.
1: Yeah, in the words of Whitney Houston, the children are the future. Yeah. <laughs> um, but
0: there's also a hearty
1: uh, audience of adults, right?
0: Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I've met a lot of adults who talk about how comics were their gateway to reading. At my store, we, anytime we're asked the question, I don't really know much about comics, but I want to get into comics. Our first question is, well, what do you like? Like, what shows do you watch? What other books do you read? You know, and and that connection, being able to talk to someone as opposed to just pointing and clicking and checking out. I love that
1: because it's really come full circle for you. You were a young fan, and now here you are. You have Amalgam where you're fostering the love of comics for a new generation of fans and helping them connect to each other.
0: Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, fandom is really exciting because it almost, like, validates your weirdness. You know what I mean? um and that's just really fun to to meet those folks however you meet them and to have those conversations and arguments sometimes
1: I think that a healthy round of nerd debates is a really special and fun part of being in a comic shop.
0: I am I am now a mediator. Mm. You know what I mean? And and that's not something I'd ever mm-hmm. I'm an instigator now. <laughs> <laughs> but now I'm in this position where I have to I have to, you know, always be the level head, right? Mm-hmm. Got to be the grown-up, right?
2: Man, Amalgam is a kind of shop that I always dreamed of existing, but never had anything quite like it when I was growing up. And I'm so glad that Ariel's managed to create this business.
1: I really am too. I think that if my younger self could walk into that comic shop, that would really just make little Lorraine's life. So while Ariel has this amazing way of bringing fans together by building a comic shop for them to hang out in, we have one last guest who brings fans together in a totally different way.
6: Hi, I'm Yaya Han and uh, I'm a costume designer and cosplayer. And I also recently wrote a book about the culture of cosplay. So I guess I'm an author as well. Yaya is a professional
1: cosplayer and she's the perfect person for us to talk to because she's made one heck of a career out of her personal fandom. But her life as a fan started out pretty lonely and it was a bit of a struggle for her to find people like herself.
6: I was born in China and uh, my parents uh, divorced and my mom moved to Germany and I followed her to Germany. So I actually grew up in Germany even though I have roots all in China and I am here because of fandom. (laughs) (laughs) I was a geek and a fan from a young age, but Germany was developing a lot slower in terms of, you know, fandoms. And uh, so I felt very out of place. It was like I had to hide who I was and what I liked, because people in my class and friends, they just didn't understand. And when I came to America, it was like a whole new world opening. I felt like I found my people for the first time. So what was your first convention? So Anime Expo 1999, that was my first convention, and I went with the fan club, uh, the anime club. They rented a bus, and they had this whole thing organized, and we had to drive um, several hours <laughs> cross states to get to Anaheim. Then I also prepared a couple of costumes very badly, really <laughs> horrible costumes, <laughs> but, you know, I learned how to sew— uh, so I had a really well-rounded, good first convention experience where I really felt like I could be myself. Nobody was asking like, so what do you do or where are you from? It was just very like, hey, you're one of us.
1: What is that experience like when you're cosplaying a character and you have that sort of mutual acknowledgement of fandom between you and another person? What is that like for you?
6: Uh almost like telepathy it's like out of the corner of my eye i see a group dressed as my favorite characters from something and i get so excited i'm just like oh my god i want to talk to them and it's this immediate understanding like i don't know you i don't know your name but we are you know we're bros (laughs) and (laughs) that's what i love about cosplay it goes beyond wearing a t-shirt of your favorite character or, you know, like, like how else do you express what you love with more passion? You know, you dress up as the character that you love. That's like sort of the pinnacle of being a fan. You know, it makes me think so many people, I I don't know if they even realize
1: how much work people put into a cosplay that they make.
6: (laughs) Yes. For me, it's... uh, anywhere between 50 to 100 hours you know depending on the complexity of the costumes and and like speed and how long it takes shouldn't matter i don't want people to be like oh my god if i don't spend 100 hours on a costume i'm not a real cosplayer like that's not what it's about it's it's truly like you become closer to the character that you're dressing up as because you have now meticulously gone through every single part of their outfit and you put so much of your love into it that by the time you put the costume on, you really have a much closer connection to that source material. And it's, it's lovely. It's very wholesome.
1: It is very wholesome. I mean, it's, I mean, you have to have a lot of devotion to sustain 300 hours.
6: Um, I spent, I spent that much, I spent 300 hours making Gamora. Days mm -hmm. of sanding her white space armor from the comics and, It was like just being covered in foam shavings for four weeks straight, but (laughs) it was awesome, you know? (laughs) I
1: remember that costume. It was sick, as the kids say. (laughs) Thank you.
6: But I've been very lucky. I've gotten to go to many wonderful different events and and conventions. And um, what I've just noticed is that even if you are in a different country and you maybe don't speak the same language, like the way that people love fandom is the same you know like the way that people cosplay is the same and it's it's really really precious i think
1: over 80 years ago marvel fandom started out with no real community to speak of
2: Those fans began as inexhaustible letter writers.
1: And then evolved into card-carrying fan club members and convention goers.
2: And some eventually emerged as creators themselves, making art for a whole new generation of future fans.
1: Ultimately, these fans did what fans do best. They found something that they loved and they took ownership of it. They made it theirs and gave it a soul, which is exactly what being a fan is about.
2: So what special insights have we gained by going back through these eight decades of fandom? Well, for my money, I think the common thread we kept seeing over and over was the connection of one fan to another, like a law of fan physics or something.
1: The connection that fans share with one another is at the core of fandom.
2: Whether it was Joe Duffy, who as a young fan started out completely alone.
1: And after years of writing fan letters. Wound up becoming friends, as in actual buds with some of the people I wrote to. Or Arielle Johnson, who as a
0: kid was very much introverted.
2: But devoted her life to comics and today is at the center of
0: a place where connections are being made.
2: Or even take George R.R. Martin, who at age
5: 15 didn't know any actual comic fans where I lived.
0: But after going to a few
1: Comic Cons ended up meeting
5: a number of my dearest friends for years to come.
1: So if this episode has clarified anything, let it be this. No matter how you geek out, if you love something, there is always someone...
2: Or lots of someone
1: ...who love that thing as much as you do. Or to borrow a phrase from my friend, Yaya... Hey, we're all geeks, we're all fans,
6: and it's awesome.
2: And that's a wrap for Season 1 of Marvel's The Classified...
6: That's right.
1: This was the last episode of our season. So to everyone listening, we are so grateful you are along for this wild ride.
2: I personally hope that you've learned something deeper and more insightful about this medium that we all love. And I hope that you've been entertained. And, you know, just uh, thank you again so much for letting us into your ears and your homes and your places and computers and wherever people Get
1: out of their homes. Yeah, you're right. We are going to close our files up and leave some classified things here in our filing cabinet. But thank you for going through the stacks with us and helping us discover the truth of Marvel history.
3: <coughs> I'm
2: gonna dust on these stacks.
1: We'll clean up and we'll catch you on the next one. Stick around for an after credit scene with George R.R. R. Martin as he reads one of our favorite fan letters we've ever heard.
2: Do it, do it.
1: Yeah, do it. Peer pressure. Marvel's Declassified is a co-production of Marvel and Sirius XM. This episode is produced by Lorraine Sink, Evan Narciss, and story edited by Daniel Hartley.
2: With help from Jorge Estrada, Alexis Williams, M.R. Daniel, and Zachary Goldberg, Rebecca Seidel is a senior producer.
1: The executive producer is Jill Deboff. The creative producer is Harry Goh. The development manager is Brad Barton. And the consulting editor is Leela Day.
2: The fact checker is Natalie Mead. The show is mixed by Matthias Winter. And the theme music is written and performed by Edith Mudge.
1: Special thanks to Sarah Amos, Dan Buckley, Daniel Fink, Ricky Purden, Joe Casada, Shane Romani, Ron Richards, Larissa Rosen, and Stephen Wacker.
2: And a very, very special thanks to everyone who helped us get season one off the ground. John Cirilli, Francesco Coppa, Patrick Kotner, Brian Crosby, Chris Kopiniak, Jennifer Lai, and Tucker Marcus.
1: Peter Sanderson, Ben Saunders, Douglas Wolk, Liza Wiles, The Estates of Stanley and Jack Kirby, the Marvel Legal Team, and our partners at SiriusXM.
2: And of course, all of our brilliant season one guests who graced us with their presence. It wouldn't have been the same show without you.
1: Listen to the entire first season now, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed the show, tweet at us. I am at Lorraine Sink, with a C.
2: And I'm at Evnark, also with a C. Be sure to use the hashtag Marvel's Declassified.
1: Thank you so much for listening.
2: So, George, we were kind of hoping you could
5: read the first letter you got published by Marvel. God, I was 15. I'm looking at it now. I thought I was younger than that. (laughs) <laughs> so the first one was in fantastic four number 20 and it was um, talking about fantastic four number 17 so here's what i said please remember how young i was dear stan and jack ff number 17 was greater than great even now i sit in awe of it trying to do the impossible that is describe it it was absolutely stupendous the ultimate utmost I cannot fathom how you could fit so much action into so few pages. It will live forever as one of the greatest FF comics ever printed, ergo one of the greatest of all comics. In what other comic mag could you see things like a hero falling down a manhole, a heroine mistaking a toy inventor for a criminal, and the president of the USA leaving a conference that may determine the fate of the world to put his daughter to bed. The epic story, spectacular and exciting as it is, is not all that made the mag so great. The letter column was top-notch, too. I nearly died when I saw Paul Gambacini's letter. It really made him change his tune. That letter was a far cry from the one printed in Fantastic Four number 9. And then there's your cover boast, the world's greatest comic magazine. Brilliant. You were just about the world's worst mag when you started, but you set yourself an ideal, and by gumbo, you achieved it. More than achieved it, in fact. Why, if you're only half as good as you are now, you'd still be the world's best mag and signed George R. Martin. I didn't have the second R, or I wasn't using a second R yet. That's interesting. Uh, 35 East 1st Street, Bayonne, New Jersey. No zip code, because I don't think zip codes had been invented yet, just Bayonne, New Jersey.
2: How does it feel reading that again after all this time?
5: It is interesting to look back on that letter and see, I'd, I'd forgotten some of it. I shouldn't have said by gumbo. <laughs> <laughs> I got so much about that particular phrase, you know, That a letter came out. I was thrilled with it for for a while. you know, gosh, I was in i was I had a letter published, and it took like a month or something by someone from my high school <laughs> saw it and particularly <laughs> picked up on the phrase by gumbo, and I got about by gumbo for the rest of the school year, <laughs> yeah.